Yeah, if you're in uh, Roy Jr., you can guys can go ahead and go with Braden out the back door. <clears throat> it's always really hard to, to speak after communion. I don't know if it's a salt on the cracker that gets stuck in your throat in the little cup of juice. Um, if you've got your Bibles, let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to close out. Um, this chapter tonight. Uh, so as you, many of you probably know, I was traveling to Uganda a few, last weekend, I think, um, and um, that's the first time I'd been on an airplane in about three years. I used to travel internationally regularly every year, um, and uh, one thing that I forgot about was there's a lot of movies, like on the plane, like right in front of you, your own personal little screen, you know, and the headrest in front of you. Um, has anybody ever seen, uh, the movie Blood Diamond? A few, a few people? Yeah. Um, it's a Leonardo DiCaprio movie if you're a fan. Um, but it's about, uh, rebel forces in Africa exploiting children and tearing families apart to get cheap labor to find diamonds and sell them for weapons and power. It's probably not the best movie to watch before you go to Africa. Um, I watched it on the way to Africa. Uh, but uh, one of the main characters in the movie, uh, his family in the beginning is torn apart uh, and the rebel forces take his son. And for the rest of the movie, he is doing everything within his power to get his son back. Uh, and, and to where he even um, uh, unleashes his fury on multiple different men to get his son back. Uh, and so I think we've all seen or know, like there's plenty of movies like this where the father is trying to get um, the child back. Um, maybe you've seen the movie Taken. It's a little bit older, right? Um, the, the father's daughter is taken, and for the rest of the movie, he unleashes his fury and wrath on anyone who had anything to do with his daughter, and he's doing anything he can to be reconciled back to his daughter. Um, or one of my personal favorites, um, The Patriot. Anybody seen that one? Uh, oh, yeah. Great film, right? Um, well, Mel, Mel Gibson's uh, son in the beginning is killed by Colonel Tavington, that evil man, right? And then, like, I mean, the entire movie, like, you know, if you've seen it once or, or, or 50 times, everybody feels the loss. You feel the dread, right? And, and, and you, 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 you completely understand when you see Mel Gibson's character, the father, seek revenge and unleash his fury on those enemies who took his son's life, right? In that crazy scene where it's just a blood-soaked creek, and he just goes to town with the hatchet. No one questions the father's fury or the father's wrath because everybody's like, he loves his son, or he loves his daughters, he loves his children. And so if we don't question the father's wrath when it comes to earthly fathers, why do we question the heavenly father's wrath? Right, like, and maybe, maybe all of those illustrations are lost on you. You haven't seen any of those movies, right? Um, let me give you a personal example. Let's say someone or multiple people try to come into my house and take advantage of my wife and my kids and, and murder them. And what would you say about me as a husband and a father if I stood by and did nothing and allow that to happen? Would you say that I was a loving father? 
No, you'd probably say that's evil. You probably had a part in it if you let it happen, right? But if I unleashed my fury and wrath on whoever was coming to harm my family, you would say he was motivated by his love, right? We know that is true, that, that you can't just be love and have no righteous anger, no, no wrath. And so the reason I give these examples is because there's this wicked doctrine going around, and maybe you've heard about it, that, that says that God is just love. The, the Bible said, they, say, they quote the scriptures, the, the Bible says God is love. And they, they're right, God is love. But that's not all that he is. They, they love to focus on his love, to focus on his mercy, to focus on his grace, to focus on forgiveness. And they reject this idea that God is also a God of wrath. That he's, he's a just God, that he's a holy God. They say that his love overpowers his wrath. They say, how can an all-loving God eternally condemn his creation? How can an all-loving God, if he's so all-loving, how can he eternally condemn those he created? So people start to question God's wrath. And when you start to question God's wrath, then you start to question the reality of hell. And you start to question the scriptures themselves. Then you start to question Jesus Right? And in the existence of hell. And then, and then that leads down the road to denying the scriptures completely. Because if you, if you question God's wrath, if you question Jesus, if you question hell, then you have to disagree with the reality that is taught by Christ himself that there is a place of eternal conscious torment for those who reject Christ. Jesus himself said in Matthew 10, 28, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And then later in chapter 18, he says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. And in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verse 48, hell is described as a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So to the question, to question the validity of hell is to question God himself. It's to say that, that there is no judgment over sin. I've quoted this multiple times before in previous sermons, but I'm going to say it again because I think it's one of the best quotes for the gospel. This is from Pastor John Piper. He said that the gospel is this, the love of God makes escape from the wrath of God by sacrificing the Son of God to vindicate the righteousness of God because people have trampled the glory of God. And that's a, a well-rounded description of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In our passage tonight, as we wrap up chapter 10, we're going to see the author give us a not very PC de de depiction of God. This is not a popular view of God in our culture today. We don't like to hear about God's wrath. We don't like to talk about his judgment. We like to talk about his love. We like to talk about his grace. And yes, it's true. We, as we've seen it through this entire series, Hebrews is full of grace. It's dripping. It's drenched with grace from beginning to end. Right, but there's also 
these massive, serious warnings that we've been seeing throughout the chapters. Here's a few, just a review. Hebrews 2 says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, this gospel, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And then in the very next chapter, chapter 3, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. And then in chapter 6, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Tonight we're going to see yet again another warning in this passage. And I think, sadly, that there is zero to very little fear of the Lord in our land today. Not many people like to talk about the fear of the Lord, the wrath of God, the judgment of God. But that's where we find ourselves tonight in a sober passage. A shocking warning that we need to take seriously. Every single one of us. So let's pray Ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us before we read God's word together. Father, we praise you for everything you've already done tonight. We praise you for the place that we are able to meet right now. Lord, for Jesus, thank you so much for giving us this reminder in communion of your your life, your death, your sacrifice so that we could have life. This reminder of you taking our place. This reminder of this empty cup. I pray that you, Holy Spirit, would open up our eyes because we cannot see anything. These are just words on a page apart from you, apart from your power and your work and our hearts and our minds. Grant faith where there is none. Give us hope where there's hopelessness. Help us to walk away from this place tonight with greater love in our hearts for you, that we might know you more, to fear you more, to love you more, to obey you more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 26. This is God's holy word. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days When after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. 
For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So this text comes to us on the hills of the encouragement, the exhortation, the challenge that we saw last week, right? In verses 22, 23, 24, those very clear, very simple, draw near to God with a true heart in faith. Hold fast our confession of hope. Consider how to stir up one another to love. And, and as Brody was, was preaching that, I couldn't help but think of those three massive words that are so clear. Faith, hope, and love. They're there, right there, coupled together. That's what we need, right? We need faith, hope, and love. We need those coupled with the fear of the Lord, right? Wrapped up in the fear of the Lord. We need those. We're going to see that in the text tonight. The outline of the text that we're going to walk through is verses 26 to 31 is the first section we're going to see tonight. And this is where we see the warning, right? This is where we see no fear of God. We see no fear of his wrath. In verses 32 to 36, we see present troubles, but an eternal perspective. And then verses 37 and 39, we see future judgment, but salvation by faith. We're going to look at each of these sections in turn. So one question I was asking as I was studying this was, in verses 26 to 31, who is the author speaking to? He's talking to the Jewish people. He's talking to the people who have professed faith in Christ. He's speaking to the church. He's talking to his congregation. Look at verse 26. These are people who've received the truth. These are people who knew the gospel, who appeared to be sanctified, like verse 29 says. That they appeared to know God, to be his people, like verse 30 says. The writer has apostasy in mind in this section. Now, you might be like, what in the world does that mean? What's, what's the word apostasy? What's an apostate? Apostasy is defined as abandonment or renunciation of belief, right? An apostate is someone who refuses to continue to follow, obey, or recognize faith that they once did. They once had faith, but now they completely reject it. Apostasy is total desertion. It's a departure from the faith. It's someone who used to claim to be a Christian but has no interest in Jesus anymore. They say they have no need for grace. It's someone who disbelieves the promises of God. They have no desire for Jesus. They have no need for a mediator. They don't care about the new covenant. It's someone who completely rejects Christ. I had a friend many years ago who was a, a, a little bit younger than me. He was a, a new believer. Uh, he asked me to disciple him. We had a pretty good relationship for years off and on. Um, we lost track of each other. Uh, as we got a little older, we, um, we grew apart, but then we reconnected. And uh, I was like, man, how you doing? And he said, man, I'm really struggling. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid that I'm an apostate. And, and I asked him, I said, are you willing to say that Jesus is not the Son of God? Are you willing to reject Jesus? 
Are you willing to spit on the cross of Christ and to say, I don't need you, I don't need that, and to say, Jesus, your, your crucifixion was just another ordinary death. There's nothing special about your blood. Are you willing to disobey the Holy Spirit deliberately outright? And he said, absolutely not. And I encouraged him. I said, well, then that's not the signs of being an apostate. Brother, you're, you're just a brother in Christ who's wrestling with lingering sin. You have nagging fleshly appetites, right, that you have to put to death regularly as believers. And that's why Jesus said, if you want to be my disciples, then you have to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. That's not like a one and done thing. That's like daily. That's like every day. I'm going to wake up tomorrow and say, no to Joseph. Deny Joseph. Joseph's got to die today. If Joseph doesn't die today, Joseph ain't going to follow Jesus. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Submit to me. Obey me. Listen to me. Be sensitive to me. This is an ongoing thing. So how do you know if you're not an apostate? How do you know? If you, if you like keep sinning, you, you seemingly willfully sin over and over again. Verses 26 to 31 tell us very clearly. Ask yourself these questions. Is there a pattern of willful, voluntary, deliberate sinning in your life? Have you set aside the word of God? Are you willing to trample Jesus and insult the cross of Christ? Do you reject Jesus as the son of God? Are you willing to say you have no faith in Jesus, no hope in Jesus, no love for Jesus? Is there any worship of Jesus in your life? Do you have no submission to his lordship? No love for him or his people? An apostate is someone who says yes to those questions. An apostate is God's adversary. It's someone who hates God. Now, you can know the truth. You can have the knowledge of Jesus. You can comprehend the gospel. You can read the Bible. You can go to church. You can attend small group and still fight with sin and still wrestle with sin. It's very possible, right? But there's an eternity's worth of difference between a struggling saint and a person who is an apostate. An eternity's worth of difference. So there's no longer a sacrifice for sins. That's a shocking phrase. There's no longer a sacrifice for sins because an apostate rejects Christ's sacrifice. They reject Jesus as the great high priest that we've been learning about. They reject his person. They reject his ministry. They reject his work. So the only thing left is a fearful expectation of judgment. And this is inescapable judgment because there's only two options for people at the end of the day. Option one is judgment. Option two is sacrifice. Right? Our, our great problem is sin. Sin is the ruin and the misery of our souls. Right? God is not indifferent towards our sins, no matter what anybody tries to tell you. He's not indifferent towards our sin. He takes it so seriously that he sent his son to deal with it himself. So the problem that we deal with is God is angry over our sin. There's, there's either judgment or sacrifice over sin. Nothing else. 
One question that I, I love to ask people when I get in gospel conversations, if I'm trying to gauge where somebody is on their understanding of God, their understanding of the Bible, I ask them this simple question. What do you deserve from God? What do you think? What do you think you deserve from God? Now, I get a lot of different answers for this. Some people say, nothing. I don't deserve anything from God. Because they, they think by saying that, they have some vague sense of, I know I'm a little guilty, and I know that I, don't, I, don't, I didn't earn anything from him, and so I don't deserve anything from him. Right? But hardly, now some people will say, his love. And I'm like, you, you think you deserve his love? They're like, yeah. Like, like, I mean, he created, like, me. And they have this understanding of God as creator. And, like, he created me. Of course, he loves me, you know? And so then we get to talk about, well, what does the Bible say? What, what, the wages of sin is death. Well, what are wages? The things that you earn, right? And you would be mad if you went to work and you didn't get paid, right? You're like, I earned that money. I deserve that money because I put in time. I put in effort. I worked for it. I deserve it. Right, So then we say, well, let's look at the scriptures and say, well, did you earn, what did you earn from God? Because of our sin, we deserve, hardly anybody answers this question and says, I deserve hell. I deserve God's wrath. I deserve punishment. I deserve judgment because of my sin. Hardly anybody says that. Why? Because for the most part, we have a cavalier attitude towards sin. Or we don't like to think that we're actually that bad. Earlier this week, Allie sent me a quote from Buddy Balkum. He said, it amazes me that we believe that God would crush his son, but let us slide. How dare we think that way? Our understanding of God's righteous anger is severely lacking. The reality is the spirit of grace alone is the only thing holding us up right now. The spirit of grace alone. If you look at verses 30 and 31 as it wraps up our first section, he says, for we know who said vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Right, the writer here is quoting Deuteronomy where God's warning Israel. Falling into the hands of the living God is utter ruin for unrighteous sinners who reject Christ. They have a small view of God and his holiness and a very high view of themselves. That's what a lot of people struggle with. A small view of a holy God and a high view of themselves. We think too highly of ourselves. Jesus had the exact opposite view. Jesus had the correct view of the Father. And that's why we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane sweating drops of blood before he's even arrested, before the sham trials even start, before the persecution, before the beatings, before any of that happens, we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It says that he's near death. Why? He's going and he's praying. He's spending time with the Father. But he says he's near death, sweating drops of blood. Why? Because he has a high view of a holy God. He was contemplating the Father's wrath being poured out on him in that cup. And that's why he prayed, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but your will be done. 
So may we never, ever again come before the Lord in communion and take this cup and drink the cup and not think of the wrath of God. Like take this cup practically, set it on your desk, put it in your car and think about it's empty. Jesus drank this in my place. Jesus drank this in your place. He drank the wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to endure it because he understood what was at stake. He knew exactly what he was doing. He drank it in our place to rescue us from the fury of hellfire that would consume the adversaries of a holy God. Now, what I'm about to read is extremely unpopular. It's very heavy. It's very long, but I think it's necessary. It's a quote from a sermon from Jonathan Edwards. He preached this on July 8th, 1741. He preached it during a time of great awakening. He preached it soberly. He preached it calmly. He wasn't screaming. He wasn't beating the pulpit. His, his blood vessels weren't bulging from his head and his neck. This is what he said. The wrath of God is like a great waters that are damned for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course. When once it is let loose, it is true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed hitherto. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld, but your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing. You are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are constantly rising and waxing more and more mightily. And there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back, that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open and the fiery floods of the fierceness of the wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yea, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it. The bow of God's wrath is bent. The arrow made ready on the string and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood thus all you that never passed under a great change of heart by the power of the spirit of god upon your souls all of you that were never born again and made new creatures and raised up from being dead in sin to a state of new and before altogether unexperienced light and life are in the hands of an angry god however you may have reformed your life in many ways and you may have had religious affection. You may keep up a form of religion in your families and closets and in the house of God. It is nothing but his mere pleasure that keeps you from being this moment swallowed up in everlasting destruction. However unconceived you may now be of the truth of what you hear and by and by you will be fully conceived of it. Those that are gone from being in the like circumstances with you see that it was so with them for destruction came suddenly upon most of them 
when they expected it not. While they were saying peace and safety, now they see that those things on which they depended for peace and safety were nothing but thin air and empty shadows. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, which is one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to those than to have his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every day moment. Nobody preaches like that anymore. Right? That's, that's raw, gut-wrenching, honest truth. God is infinitely holy. We are unfathomably sinful. We deserve his wrath. Truly, it's only the spirit of grace that holds us up right now. Jesus, think about how Jesus was so loving to come and seek and save the lost. Think about how loving Jesus was to come and say, repent or perish. This section ends and turns very quickly with one word, but. He wants you to remember something. Look at verse 32. But. Remember, recall the former days. There, here we see an encouragement to endure that comes by calling his audience to remember hard days. Remember how your faith grew under trials. Remember that you were enlightened and that you endured sufferings. Remember that you struggled. Remember the temptations. Remember the persecutions. Remember the affliction. Remember the mistreatment. Because you were enlightened, you were brought out of darkness and brought into God's gracious light. You had compassion. You weren't consumed by the consumerism of the world. The compassion of Christ drove your actions. Remember that you were joyful in the face of mistreatment. This is shocking about Christians and Christianity. It's been shocking for centuries. The Christians should not be people who cling to things in this world. Money, cars, houses, lands, property. All of those things are temporary. Christians know that. Christians are those people who joyfully see temporary troubles from an eternal perspective. Christians are those who endure in faith, hope, and love because of what? A better abiding possession in Christ. We can have confidence because of our great reward to come. Future blessings, future grace, future reward. We can gladly give up the consumer comforts of this present life for an eternal reward. Christians are those whose faith, hope, and love is not rooted in the things of this world, but in Christ alone. Who cling to the promise that he has made to us. That we know him who said, I'll show you the path of life. We believe the psalmist when he says, in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We believe that. We cling to that. 
And this biblical worldview drives unbelievers crazy because they don't understand it. It doesn't make sense, right? Like Christians are a, there's a win-win. Like you keep me alive, I'm going to preach Christ. You kill me, I'm going to be with Christ. It's a win-win. They don't understand to live as Christ, to die as gain. They don't understand it. The world doesn't understand that mentality. It's completely counterculture. Right? Blessings in this life are good, and we can say, thank you, Jesus. Suffering in this life is good because it makes us more like Jesus. And death is good because we get to be with Jesus. That's pretty frustrating if you don't understand that. Remember, Christian, this is what the author wants you to remember. Remember, you were enlightened, and that equals endurance in the faith. Endurance with hope, endurance with love. This is the present tense reality of the Christian life. The fear of the Lord, not man, is what we need. We need the fear of the Lord. The fear of God is the heart of true worship. Faithful worshipers fear God, obediently surrender, and trust the Lord. Knowing God should lead us to fearing God which should lead us to loving God, which should lead us to worshiping God, which should lead us to obeying God. In his book, Living in the Grip of Relentless Grace, author Ian Duguid says this. I feel like this is a beautiful like, combination of the wrath of God mixed with the mercy of God and the love of God. Listen to this. Do you know the character of the God of the Bible well enough to fear him? Above all, the book of Proverbs tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Do you fear this God well enough to serve him and obey him even when it's costly? The God whom we fear for his awesome magnificence and holiness is also the God whom we love for his equal awesome grace. He is a God who is to be loved as well as feared. At the cross, his fearsome wrath and his abundant mercy meet. Jesus took upon himself the wrath of God and the curse that we deserve for our idolatry, deceit, and trickery, for our failure to fear and reverence our God as we ought, so that in him sinners like us might be added to God's people and enabled to call this awesome, majestic, and fearful God our God forever and ever. Amen. The cross of Christ is where the wrath of God meets with the mercy of God, meets with the love of God. That's where the cross of Christ meets. Jesus drank the cup of the fury of the wrath of God in our place. Why? So that we could have peace with God forever. The final section, the last few verses we're going to look at, verses 37 to 39, focus on future judgment and encourages us as believers to not shrink back. Verse 37 reminds us yet again that Jesus is coming back. He is coming back. You remember verse 25 from last week when it said the day of the Lord is near, that Jesus' return is near. So how should we live now? Well, verse 38 says, by faith. How should we live now? By not abandoning or shrinking back from faith. How should we live now? By holding fast to our confession. What's on the line? Well, verse 39 is very clear. Our very souls are on the line. Your soul, my soul, your family's soul, your friend's soul is on the line. And the sad reality is that a lot of people don't take these warnings seriously. They don't take the word seriously. They don't think Jesus is coming back. They don't think judgment is coming. 
they don't fear the Lord. They don't trust in Jesus. They don't hope in Jesus. They don't love Jesus. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. There's two options, destruction or delight. Are you fearing the Lord and delighting in the Lord? Are you fearing the Lord and delighting in the Lord? Are faith, hope, and love the pattern of your life? Does faith, hope, and love define your life? 2 Peter 1 says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if, you're pra- if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of the Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Divine justice will be satisfied, either by enduring eternal punishment or delighting in Jesus' sacrifice forever. Our faith, our faith, Christian, has nothing to stand on but the firm foundation of Christ crucified, the righteous for the unrighteous, our only hope. So how should we live now? Faith, hope, and love. Fear the Lord, put your trust in Jesus. Fear the Lord, hope in Jesus as the anchor of your soul. Fear the Lord, love Jesus, and love others well. A couple more scriptures to close. Second Corinthians 5 says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Second Peter 1, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, your virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. Our faith, hope, and love, the pattern of your life. Do faith, hope, and love define your life. The Christian life is not like a plane ride. I thought about this on the way home, back to the States. The Christian life's not like a, pra- a plane ride. Right? You get on the plane, you, you go and find your seat, you sit down, and you completely put your faith and trust in the pilot that he's going to get you there safely. But what are you doing? You're sitting your butt in the seat. People are coming and bringing you food. You're doing nothing. They're bringing you food. They're serving you. You're being entertained, and you're just sitting there. That's not the Christian life. That's not a good picture of the Christian life. The Christian life is more like an Ironman triathlon, right? You, you've got to put some work in in order to get to the final destination, You are called to strive, to train, right? You're called to put in some holy sweat. That's what the Christian life looks like. We're not called to sit idly by and eat and drink and be entertained and do nothing but wait. We're called to work while we wait. We're called to put our trust in the finished work of Christ alone, right? We've seen that. But we're called to work in the strength of his might. His grace motivates us to work, His grace motivates us to deny ourselves. His grace motivates us to say no to ungodliness. His grace motivates us to train ourselves for godliness, to fight the good fight of the faith, to run and strive to the very end, never giving up. Revelation 12 says, and they conquered him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. 
Let's fear the Lord and endure to the end in faith, hope, and love, running hard together until either Jesus comes back or he calls us home. Faith, hope, and love together. Let's fear the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for being honest with us. I thank you so much that you don't pull any punches with your word. That you're not afraid to tell us the truth about our present condition apart from you. I pray that if there's anybody in this room who does not have faith, hope, and love in you, that tonight, oh God, that you would open their eyes that they would seek to turn from their sin and turn to you, find that you are a loving Father, your arms open wide to receive those who would turn and repent, that you give life where there is death, that there is no hope in this world apart from you, Jesus, that you are the definition and the embodiment of love that we don't even know what love is apart from you. I pray that we would walk away from this place tonight with a better, well-rounded picture and understanding of who you are, of your love, of your wrath, and we would be in awe more and more of you, Jesus, and of your cross, where your wrath and your love and your mercy mingled together and flowed down so that we could have peace and a relationship with a living God so that we could know you, love you, fear you, obey you, and share this wonderful gospel with every person that we interact with day by day. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.